Well, good morning. Some years ago, a uh, Harvard psychiatrist wrote a provocative book entitled, Whatever Became of Sin? In it, he expressed his fear that this idea of sin, the word sin, was, was falling out of, of use in our culture, in our moral vocabulary. And, and not only that, but he felt that perhaps the very concept of a universal standard of, 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 of right and wrong was declining. He went on to bemoan the declining sense of morality in our culture and people's reluctance to accept personal responsibility for their actions and behavior. He was concerned for the impact it would have on society and the physical and emotional well-being of individuals. He wrote the book in 1973. You don't hear the word sin much these days. We're much more comfortable with the words like dysfunction or, or disease or uh, shortcomings, mistakes, or even failures. In fact, a few years ago, the Oxford Junior Dictionary removed the word sin from its contents. They explained that it had fallen into disuse and was no longer relevant to younger generations. Our discomfort with the word sin has found its way into the church even. Um, A few years back, a popular TV preacher was being interviewed by Larry King on his uh, night show, And uh, King asked him about the word sinner. And the preacher said, well, I don't use that word. I most people know when they're doing wrong. So when they get to church, I try to I want them to know that they can change. Now, to be fair, I can appreciate his desire to to get beyond the legalism and the judgmentalism that is often associated with Christianity. Uh, But I, I would think that. When the church abandons the the notion of sin, something has gone wrong. Something is missing in our message. It may not be comfortable. It may not be fashionable. But today we're going to learn that we can never completely live the lives God has called us to. Lives of meaning and depth and purpose and fulfillment until we deal with this concept of sin, in particular our own sin. And so today we're kicking off a sermon series. We'll be looking at 1 John, the letter of 1 John, over these next few weeks. And we'll be asking, this this is the central question we'll be asking, how are we to live if we want to live deeply and with significance, with meaning and fulfillment and intentionality? Because that's not easy to do. You know, we have good intentions, but what happens? Life happens. And we get busy and we end up in a place we didn't intend to be or we end up becoming a person we didn't want to be. Maybe you've had this experience. You get inspired spiritually. You get excited about your, your, your faith. And you think, I'm going to make serious changes. I'm going to get rid of bad habits. I'm going to, I'm going to do better. And you see progress. And you feel good about it. And you, you, you like where you're at and where you're going. But before too long, something happens. Somebody pushes your button. And you get angry. Uh, out of proportion to it. Or something distracts you, and before you know it, your thoughts go to a dark place. Or in a weak moment, you make a bad decision. A familiar temptation comes along, and you give in to it. We slip. We fall. We, to use a biblical term, we sin. So what does that say about us as Christians? What are we to do when we get to the place where we feel like we're stuck? How do we get to the place where our belief in Christ is growing and our behavior is becoming more Christ-like? That's the question I want us to wrestle with today as we start this study of John's first letter. Now, before we jump into the passage that was just read, a few uh, statements, uh, overview of the letter. 
They'll be helpful for us. We'll come back to this in the weeks to come. But John's letter is organized around three tests of, of authentic faith. There's a doctrinal test. What do you believe? There's an ethical test. How do you live? And there's a relational test. Who do you love? This week, we're going to focus on the ethical test. And then we'll move on to the other two after another week on the ethical test next week. And anyhow, so John begins his, this passage that was just read by asserting very clearly that as human beings, we're sinful by nature and sinful by choice. So let's pick it up in verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we claim not to have sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. So in these verses, John confronts two mistaken ideas that we tend to have about sin, in particular our own sin. The first mistaken idea is that it's not really that big of a deal. You know, sir, we're not perfect, but it's really, it's really not that big of a deal. But again, verse says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. A more literal translation here is if we say we have no sin, which is an unusual way of putting it. John's the only biblical writer who uses that phrase. If we have sin, have no sin. And, and, and if we have to say that we have sin is to say that we have a, a moral problem, an underlying principle that tends to make us. Uh, a disposition towards disobedience. It's not just that we do wrong things sometimes. It's that there's something wrong within us and uh, within us. You know, in the, in the confirmation class uh, that the kids have just finished up, our students, uh, they learn a lot of things. But one of the things is they learn this statement about what is sin. And sin is anything in word, deed, or thought contrary to the will of God. That about covers it, don't you think? Sin is, is a problem. Anything in word, deed, or thought contrary to the will of God. That's the first mistaken idea. It's really not that big of a deal. The second mistaken idea people have about sin is sometimes we can think, okay, yeah, other people sin, but my sin isn't that big a deal. It's not a problem for me. I've, I've gotten beyond that. Look at verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him, God, out to be a liar. And his word has no place in our lives. Now, here John is moved from talking about sin as a condition to now sin as an action or a behavior. Apparently, there are people in the church to which John was writing who were teaching and believing that they'd achieved a level of spirituality where they no longer sinned. Perfectionism is what it's called. And John refutes both lines of thinking. He says, if, you, if we think we don't have a sin problem, we're deluding ourselves. And he says, if we claim that we haven't sinned, we're making God out to be a liar. Both strong statements from John, who's known as the apostle of, of love. But John knows that we can never live the lives God has intended for us, of meaning and purpose and of depth, until we face the reality of sin and of our own personal sin in particular. John is not the only biblical writer to make this point. After committing murder and adultery, David says this, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. He confesses both his sinful actions and his sinful nature and tendencies. 
Romans 3, Paul says this, there is no difference for all of sin and falls short of the glory of God. In other words, nobody's exempt. We all miss the mark. We all get off the wrong, get off the path. We've all broken God's law, sometimes in ignorance, sometimes in weakness. And let's be honest, sometimes in flat out deliberate rebellion. So the testimony of scripture is clear. We are sinners by nature and by choice. Now, I would be laying about upon you a pretty heavy message if I didn't make this, this declaration as well. The Bible also tells us that human beings are created in the image of God. That we're precious in the sight, that we are the crown of his creation. That our very nature is designed to reflect his goodness and his love and his justice and his beauty. And sometimes, oftentimes, we get it right. People all over the world do wonderful things that reflect God's goodness and design for their lives. But John reminds us, it's just that ever since the fall of humanity, we have this skew in our nature, away from God, away from his goodness. This disposition to do the wrong thing, to hurt the people that we love. Why do we hurt the people we love the most, it seems like? And to trash what God meant to be beautiful. Our very nature is shot full of these tendencies. Now, unless you think I'm overemphasizing a little bit, it's not just scripture that testifies to this. It's human experience. I mean, who among us is prepared to say that we haven't done something foolish or hurtful or rebellious? Is there anybody among us who doesn't have to fight certain tendencies that can get us into trouble time and again? A number of years ago, Nancy and I took our kids to Washington, D.C. for spring break, and we did the whole D.C. thing. We did the monuments. We did the White House. Um, we did the, the museums, but one of the days that was really powerful was we went to the Holocaust Museum. I spent several hours there. It, it's it's powerful. It's moving. It's disturbing. Uh, it, it's just it, it's really just overwhelming. You you walk through these exhibits, and you see the the horror of the Holocaust chronicled through artifacts and photos and videos, and, and personal stories and testimonies. It's all there. The ghettos, the gas chambers. The mass graves, the atrocities inflicted on men, women, and children. Visitors make their way through in stunned and somber silence. It's hard to believe that p- people could do such horrible things to each other. And one of the lessons that you learn as you go through this experience is that the people who committed these atrocities were ordinary people. We often like to make them out to be monsters. You know, the Gestapo or the political fanatics or the hardened soldiers. But in one instance, there was a story about a regiment of German police who were in charge of the Warsaw Ghetto, one of the worst ghettos. And they were hardworking, church-going, average people from the suburbs. And yet they dragged their fellow citizens from their homes. They tore kids from their parents' arms. They abused women. They shot people at point-blank range. They herded thousands of people onto trains and were sent off to their deaths. And the records show that these police were given the option not to participate. Of 500, only 15 chose not to participate. You know, I don't know how anybody can walk through that memorial and not believe that there's something wrong with us as human beings deep down inside that we're flawed, that we're sinners, that in despite of God's gift to us for capacity for beauty and goodness and truth, that we have this disposition 
toward evil that affects every part of us and that we give into it far too often and far too easily. So what are we to do with this sin, with our sin? Well, most of us, God willing, are never going to commit these kinds of crimes. But every one of us will routinely do things and say things and think things that hurt those we love, that hurt ourselves, and that offend God. And and when we sin, we drive a wedge between us and others, between us and God, and even between who we want to be and and the struggles we have. So what are we to do? Well, we've got a few options. One, we, could, we can ignore it. We can try not to think about it, to make excuses for it, to just put it away. I don't want to think about that. You know, she started it, or it's just the way I'm wired, or it could have been a lot worse. It wasn't that bad. We minimize, we rationalize. We do not want to admit to ourselves or to God that we have a problem. Another op- uh, option is to obsess over it, to punish ourselves, to beat ourselves up, to wallow in guilt and shame and regret. But the problem with obsessing is it only serves to drive us deeper into our sin, to make us more, less, more powerless and, and drive us further from God and from ourselves and, and who we want to be. And chances are most of us have a tendency towards one or two of these responses. Either ignore it or obsess. But the problem is neither one of them works. Neither one removes guilt. Neither one restores this relationship to God and to others. But thankfully, there's a third option for dealing with our sin. According to John, we can confess it. 1 John 1.9 is one of the most beautiful and powerful verses in the Bible. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And to confess our sin is to name it, to acknowledge it, to admit to ourselves and to God that we've done it. It's wrong and we're sorry. It means openly acknowledge our failure and our weakness and our guilt and our shame. But John says that if we confess our sins, God will do two things. He'll surely do two things. The first is he will forgive us. And to forgive someone is to release them from a debt or obligation. Like say you have a loan at the bank. And for some reason, they decide to forgive your loan. It means you no longer have to make payments on that loan, that debt. And when God forgives us for our sin, it means we no longer need to pay for that sin. We don't have to punish ourselves. We don't need to do penance. The second thing God will do when we confess our sin is he will cleanse us. He will get rid of, uh, of the, the, the dirt, the filth. He will remove what is, doesn't belong there. Well, maybe one way to think of it is uh, there was a commercial a few years back on TV about it was for laundry detergent. And there's this middle aged mother and she wants to go out on the town with her friends. And uh, she goes into her teenage daughter's closet. Her daughter doesn't know she's doing this. She finds this really cool, trendy uh, blouse and she puts it on. She goes out with her friends. She's having a great time. And then she spills something huge stain right in the middle of the blouse. And so she, she rushes home and she has this new detergent with Axolift technology, whatever that is. And with one wash, the stain is gone. The blouse is returned. The daughter never knows the difference. And they go on with the relationship, just as if nothing ever happened. Now, the analogy falls short in this. There are no secrets from God, right? God knows all, sees all, feels all, hears all. But he is willing and able not only to forgive us for what we've done, 
but to cleanse us from our sin. Forgiveness releases us from guilt. Cleansing removes our sin. Forgiveness takes care of our, care of our past, and cleansing makes our, our future possible. And all of this is possible because God is a God who loves us. He's faithful, and He is just. And then John concludes this passage by saying this in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you do not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. God can forgive our sins because Jesus Christ paid for it. God can cleanse our sin. Because the blood of Christ washes it away. You know, I don't know what people do who have nowhere to go with their sin and their guilt and their shame. Do they cover it up? Do they carry it around with them? Do they kid themselves into believing that it doesn't matter? How much more liberating, how wonderful, how freeing to confess it to God and trust and know and believe in assurance that he will forgive us of our sin. He will cleanse us. Because we have an advocate, his son, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words that are recorded by the Apostle John. We thank you, Father, that uh, you are God of mercy and love and grace. And we confess to you, Lord, that we fall short in so many areas of our lives. Um, some that we're aware of and some that we aren't. But, Lord Jesus, you have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. You paid the price. You, uh, you cleanse us of our sin. You give us a new start. You have forgiven our sins, past, present, even our sins in the future. They are all covered on the, on the cross, Lord Jesus. So help us, Father, to keep a, a clean record, to, to uh, deal with the guilt and the shame that we sometimes feel by bringing it to you and knowing it with confidence that you've taken care of it on the cross. So, Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Son, and we pray that you would help us to move forward into the lives you've called us to live, pointing others to you, Lord Jesus, loving others and loving you. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen.